Would you please open your Bibles to John 15 as we continue our series in Jesus' farewell discourse. Many of you work in jobs that depend on productivity. If you yourself are not productive or the company that you work for is not productive, it's only a matter of time before your job may be in jeopardy. I have some experience in this world. I worked in sales for a number of years before I became a pastor. And sales is all about productivity. So one of the main things I would spend my time doing each morning is tracking the productivity, tracking results, my own, and later when I was in management, the productivity of my team. In the church, we are generally skeptical about tracking results. And to a degree, it's a good skepticism. I also am skeptical of churches who would define productivity, success, through what we call nickels and noses. How much money you bring in, how many people come into your church are not the way to define success or to measure productivity. But in our passage this morning, we see that productivity matters very much to Jesus. Or more specifically, Jesus is looking for produce. You know, the kind that you buy in the produce section in the store. It's about, more specifically, fruitfulness. Jesus makes it very clear. He wants His disciples to bear fruit. What is the chief end of man? Is the first question in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But how do we glorify God? Jesus tells us in verse 8 of our passage, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Fruitfulness is a way we glorify God, and it is also a way that we show that we are Jesus' disciples. Verse 16, toward the end of the passage, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that, here's the purpose, you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that's the vision that Jesus has for the church. He wants us to bear fruit. He begins the chapter by saying, I am the vine and my Father is the vine dresser. And again, in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. We may miss the significance of this statement if we don't understand the context from which it comes. It is a loaded statement. You see, in the Old Testament, you can read about this and. Psalm 80 or in Isaiah 5, we see that Israel, God's people, were called His vine. And God had prepared His vineyard in such a way that it would produce fruit. He expected it to bear good fruit. But instead, 
it bore bad fruit. And because it failed to produce the fruit that God was looking for, He promised that He would judge His vineyard. But He also made a promise. You find this in a few places in Isaiah. That He would provide a new vine that would produce good fruit. A vine from the line of King David. So when Jesus... In John 15, 1, says, I am the vine. He is making a very profound statement. He's saying that which God's people Israel failed to do in the past, produce fruit, I will do. And I will do it through my disciples, the branches that are in the vine. They will produce fruit. That's a promise if they abide in Him. As I mentioned earlier, this is Jesus' farewell discourse, His final words before He goes to the cross. And in these final words, He gives a vision of fruitfulness for the church. Let's learn more about what that fruitfulness looks like through reading our passage. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? John 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name He may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here's my sermon in a sentence. True disciples of Jesus Christ will bear fruit. I've already established that point. That's the great desire of Jesus in this passage. True disciples of Jesus will bear fruit. Fruit bearing is very important to Jesus. And if that's the case, then the question before us is how? How will we be people who bear fruit? And the obvious answer is through the repeated word within this passage, repeated ten times. It is through abiding in Jesus. A phrase that we are very familiar with if we have been in the church. But what actually does it mean to abide in Jesus? We see as we work our way through this passage, which is divided into three sections, verses 1 to 8, Jesus gives us this metaphor of the vine. So we know that's the first section. But beginning in verse 9, he changes the language to the language of love. First dealing with his love for his disciples, verses 9 to 11. Then their love for one another, in verses 12 to 17. Each of these three sections will teach us a lesson about abiding and bearing fruit. Let's begin with the first in verses 1 to 8. Here's the lesson. To bear fruit, Christ's life must be in you. In verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Why does Jesus say that if you abide in him, you will bear fruit? Not you maybe will bear fruit, but that you will bear fruit. It's because Jesus is the life-giving vine. He has life in himself. And so to bear fruit, Christ's life must be in you and you must be in the life-giving vine. You must be connected to the life-giving vine. This is the foundational truth in this passage. But it raises a couple of questions. For one, how do we get connected to the life-giving vine? And then secondly, how do we know that we're connected to the life-giving vine? The answer to the first question is really clear in John. We get connected to the life-giving vine through faith in Jesus Christ. The end of chapter 20 John tells us that everything that was written in the book of John was for a purpose, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in His name. Or maybe the more familiar passage, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His unique Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have life, eternal life. So all who place their faith and their trust in Jesus 
have this life in them. They are connected to the vine. And they will bear fruit. You cannot hear me. You will not bear fruit apart from faith in Christ. Being connected to Him. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. But how do you know if you have genuine faith? So we know the answer is faith. That's how you get life in His name. But how do you know that you have this life? The obvious answer, circular a bit, is that you produce fruit. But that is a little vague, a little general. However, that's all we're given at this point. We'll have to wait a little bit longer into the passage to see what that fruit looks like. The point now is that you know that you have life in Christ if you bear fruit. The opposite is also true. And it is sobering. If you don't bear fruit, you don't likely have Christ's life in you. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, this life-giving vine, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus began this discourse with something similar in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit... He, the Father, takes away. Now, some have wondered if this passage teaches that a person can lose their salvation. And I don't think that it does. This is what I think this passage and John's other writings are teaching us. That if a person has genuine faith in Jesus, they will produce fruit. But if they do not have genuine faith in Jesus, they won't produce fruit lasting fruit. It may show evidence of some fruit, but not lasting and genuine fruit. I think John makes it really clear that a person cannot lose their salvation. If Christ's life is in us, it is what? Eternal. Eternal life. A life that can never die. Earlier in John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that reassuring? So if you can't lose Christ's life in you, then why does Jesus say in verse 2, Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit are taken away and later thrown into the fire. Apparently, there are some people who profess faith in Christ, some who follow Jesus for a time, but aren't truly His disciples. They don't have His life in them. Notice the verse does not say that they are cut off from the vine because they're not bearing fruit. It does not say that they are put to death Apparently, they were already dead on the vine. So eventually, they show that they're dead by falling off of the vine 
onto the ground and then are gathered up, taken away, and burned. Do you want an example of somebody who is like the one that I am describing? Judas, in chapter 13, is that very person. We also see in 1 John chapter 2 of others who are like him. John says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have have come, those who are against Christ. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Listen to this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. That word is abide, remain. They would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they are not of us. Jesus is very clear in verse 8. Those who bear fruit will prove to be His disciples. They will prove to be in the life-giving, fruit-producing vine. Those who do not prove that they are not His disciples. So what about you? Are you in the vine? Is Christ's life in you? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? And is there evidence, not perfection, evidence, small blooms maybe, that show that He is alive in you, bearing fruit? Jesus says that there's one way, a really strange way, but one way to know that you have fruit in your life One way that you will be able to gain more fruit in your life. It's subtle, but it's there for us to see in verse 2. He begins by saying, The Father takes away every branch that doesn't bear fruit. Then he says, And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So how do you know that you're bearing fruit? One way is if the Lord is pruning you. Have you noticed the new landscaping out on the west side of the building? There were a lot of volunteers that did that work, including a lot of students. But there was also at least one professional helping with all of that landscaping. Her name is Irene Denault. She owns a landscaping company here in town, and I know her. Last fall... She was out at our house looking at some of our shrubs and our flowers. We struggle at our house to grow anything. We can't even keep our boxwoods alive. But we have one pink peony on the south side of our house that is beautiful. It bears fruit, so to speak, every year without fail. Irene looked at that peony and said, this has to be cut back, way back. I trust her, and so I let her do it, but she cut it almost all the way to the ground. I didn't say anything, but I thought, 
surely she's just killed the only beautiful growing thing in my yard. But guess what? This spring, it came back as full and as beautiful as ever. That's the way it is with pruning. It's counterintuitive. Pruning is painful, but it is fruitful. And not only in our gardens, but also in our lives. We have to trust God, the master gardener, the master vine dresser. He knows when we need pruning, and He knows how much pruning that we need. And so sometimes, He takes things out of our lives. And let me just say this. It's not because He's mad at us. It's not because He's punishing us. But it's because He wants more growth to be seen in our lives. Are any of you here this morning going through a particularly painful time in your life? Are there branches that have been cut off? Maybe a loss of relationship. Loss of a job. Maybe even the loss of somebody that you love. Some of the things that God takes away from us may be good things. Nothing wrong with them. May not make sense. Why? God is cutting these things off. You may be tempted to think that God is disciplining you for something that you did wrong. And maybe the Bible speaks of that happening sometimes. But could it also be that there is evidence of fruit in your life and God is pruning you because He wants you to bear more fruit? Simply something to consider. Pruning may be evidence of bearing fruit. If Christ's life's in you, you will bear fruit. That's the first thing that we learn. Let's look at the second now in verses 9 to 11. To bear fruit, let Christ's love sink in. Beginning in verse 9, Jesus leaves off with the metaphor of the vine for a moment and begins to talk about love. In verse 4, He calls His disciples to abide in Him, to abide in the vine. But in verse 9, He says, abide in My love. What does this mean? Maybe more generically, what is the love that He is calling us to abide in? We get a clue at the beginning of verse uh, 9. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. How had the Father loved Jesus? Jesus was the Father's only begotten Son. His unique Son. In the other Gospels, the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is very conscious conscious of this. He knows that the Father loves Him. He knows that He has the Father's favor. 
His identity, self-consciously, his identity is as the only son of the Father dearly loved. That's the way Jesus sees himself. And he abided in the Father's love as we see in this passage. Now, he calls his disciples to abide in his love. But what is his love? And how do we abide in it? Back in chapter 13, verse 1, we read, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That word end is the same word used when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished. As Jesus begins in chapter 13 to teach his disciples something about his love, we get a clue right here in 13.1 just how much Jesus loved us. He loved us to the end. He loved us all the way to the cross, to that moment where he hung on the cross and said, it is finished. He loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for their friends. That is the love of Jesus for you, if you are in Him. But how do we abide in this love? Like Jesus, who identified with the love the Father had for Him, we have to identify as those who are dearly loved by Jesus. The Apostle John understood this very well. As he laid his head on the chest of Jesus, In chapter 13, verse 23, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He let the love of Christ sink so deep that his very identity was bound up in Jesus' love for him. So let me ask, is your identity centered on Christ's love for you? I was visiting someone in the hospital yesterday. He was hooked up to an IV. And during my visit, I began to talk with him about the love of Jesus. I shared with him this point from my sermon. I said, we need to let the love of Jesus sink in if we are going to bear fruit. And then I looked up. And I saw that bag of medicine dripping into his arm, flowing into his veins, healing, hopefully, the infection, making him well. And it hit me, this is what we need. We need hooked up to the love of Jesus. We need that love flowing in our veins. We need the love of Jesus working its way into our cells, pumping through our lungs, giving us life. We need that love to sink in so that we can bear fruit. How will you know 
that the love of Jesus is sinking in. There are two things that are mentioned in this passage. The first is in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Keep my commandments, abide in my love. We see this connection throughout John's writings between love and commandments. Between Jesus' commandments and our love for Him. But it's different here. I don't know that you caught it. You see, Jesus says in other places, it will be clear that you are my disciples if you obey my commandments. He says, it will be clear that you love me if you obey my commandments. But that's not what Jesus says here. Here, Jesus says, it will be clear that you know that I love you if you obey my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You will be abiding in my love. If you keep my commandments, it will be clear that my love for you is sinking in. You see, it's not just love for Jesus that leads us to obey His commandments. Even more foundational than that, it is His love for us that leads us to obey His commandments. We don't earn God's love through obedience. In fact, we didn't obey His commands. But God loved the world so much that He sent His only Son. Jesus loved His own so much that He laid down His life for us. And here's the thing. When that starts to sink in, we actually begin to produce fruit. We begin to obey His commandments. We love Him through obeying His commandments because He first loved us. The second way we'll know His love has sunk in is if we have joy. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Obeying Jesus' commands is one clear indication that we're bearing fruit in our lives. But it's not simply obeying His commands that Jesus has in mind here. It's obeying His commands with joy. When we obey out of a deep sense of Jesus' love for us and all that that love has accomplished for us, forgiveness, an eternal inheritance with God. It will give us a profound joy, a delight that is deeper than the duty of obedience. Are you abiding in His love? Has the love of Christ for you sunk in to you? That's the second way to bear fruit. Third, To bear fruit, let Christ's love spill over. 
So Jesus not only wants his love for us to sink in and produce joyful obedience, he also wants his love for us to spill over into love for others. We see this at the beginning of this section, verse 12, and at the end of this section. But as we'll see, it's also in the middle, though more subtly. We don't keep the love of Jesus to ourselves. That's the point. We want to share it. We share it, first of all, with those who are in the church. As someone has said, the love of God for Christians becomes the love of God between Christians. This is clearly another indication that we are abiding in Christ, a clear manifestation of fruitfulness in our lives. 1 John says that one way you can know you have eternal life, one way that you can know that you are connected to the life-giving vine is if you have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ that are shown in very concrete and tangible ways. Not just a feeling or a disposition you have toward them, but shown in concrete ways. And the way that we practically love one another in the church happens in the church. That's why in Hebrews 10, we read, let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Some are neglecting to meet together. But rather, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's not quite clear to me how a person can claim to know the love of God and claim to love God and not be in church regularly. Church is the place we practically love one another out of an overflow of a heart that knows the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. But it's not only love for one another in the church that Jesus is calling for. There is a subtle call in the middle of this paragraph as well. He is also calling for his love to spill over into a love for the world. Verse 13, Jesus says he lays down his life for his friends. Then beginning in verse 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Many people focus on the intimacy of friendship in these verses, which is certainly important. But notice the reason Jesus calls his disciples friends instead of servants. He calls them friends because he has made known the will of God to them. 
A slave or a servant would never know the plans or the why behind the instructions of his master. They would simply do what they're told. But that's not the case with Jesus' disciples. He's revealed the Father's plan to them. We have the inside scoop. And what is the plan? We've already heard part of it. He wants us to be disciples that bear fruit. The fruit of obedience. In the same way that Jesus obeyed His Father. But He gives us more of the plan here. He doesn't want us to simply keep our fruit bearing to ourselves. He wants us to go on the road with our fruit bearing. Look again at verse 16. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The fruit he's speaking of here, I believe, is the fruit of evangelism and missions. He will say later, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Go and bear fruit. Jesus wants his fruit-bearing disciples to go and make other fruit-bearing disciples. Not simply converts, but fruit-bearing disciples so that your fruit will remain. The fruit of evangelism and missions is part of what it means for us to bear fruit in the church. Jesus wants you to bear fruit. It is his purpose for the church between his first and his second coming. He wants the church to bear fruit. And he wants to see fruit in the world as well. And he's told us how to be fruitful. He has called us to abide in him. Through faith to be vitally connected to the life of the vine. To let the love of Jesus sink into us. And to let that love then spill over into our love for one another in the church and our love for the lost in the world.